electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, Kel, thanks so much. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Scott Wapner, live from Post 9, right here at the New York Stock Exchange. This make-or-break hour begins with the countdown to Netflix earnings just about an hour away. And the first of the really big NASDAQ reports to hit the tape. The stock off to a pretty good start this year, too, which makes that release all the more important. And we're going to walk you right up to it. We also have a couple of big exclusives coming up this hour. Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan and retailing legend Mickey Drexler. They'll be along in just a little bit. Here is your scorecard with 60 minutes to go in regulation. The Dow having a tough time getting much of anything going today. Goldman Sachs, Johnson & Johnson, United Healthcare weighing a bit on that index. NASDAQ lower, as you can see, as well. Not too much, but that does bring us to our talk of the tape. All that is riding on the so-called bank stocks with tech and communication services, the two best sectors of the year by far. The big question now, can Netflix keep that momentum going? Let's bring in our Julia Borston with exactly what you need to know for that report in about an hour. Julia. Well, Scott, this is the first quarter for which Netflix has not forecast subscriber additions. So a key number that we're watching is the company's own forecast for 4% revenue growth. Earnings per share are projected to fall about 19%. So Netflix's outlook will give insight into two of its key initiatives. First, there's the company's crackdown on password sharing with its slow introduction of what they call new paid sharing options. And then the second key issue is Netflix's lower-cost ad-supported subscription tier, which launched late last year. We're going to have to see if that lower-cost tier drives ad subscription growth. Netflix, though it didn't subscribe, didn't forecast the additions. We do know that analysts are looking for the addition of 1.4 million new subs. Now, Scott, this is also Netflix's first quarter without Reed Hastings as a CEO or a co-CEO. So we're going to have to see if he makes an appearance on the earnings call in his new role of executive chairman to answer some questions. Yeah, no doubt. That's an interesting point, too. I forgot about that. Do you I mean, do you feel like we're kind of flying blind here into the report he, because the company just no longer gives that sub growth guidance? It doesn't give that subgrowth guidance because they're trying to get people to care less about subscriber growth. Obviously, people still care about subscriber growth. But I think this is going to be an interesting quarter because it's really about the guidance and the outlook. And I'm not talking about just the number of subs they say they're going to add in the second quarter because they're not going to really give a hard number there. What I'm talking about is what the potential is for the crackdown on password sharing. How has it gone so far in the few markets where it's rolled out? When will they be launching it here in the U.S.? and other really essential, really big markets. We don't have a date yet. And then, of course, the ad business, they've given some hints. They've said it's been off to a slow but a good start. But how is it actually doing? How much revenue is it generating? And how big of a year will advertising have for Netflix? Is this going to be a really big year for advertising? Or is is 2023 still going to be a starter year for their ad business? So I think this is a year, this is a quarter where analysts are going to be really pushing for insight, not just into what to expect this year, but mm-hmm. beyond in terms of what does this company look like down the line? All right. You ask all the right questions, and I think we'll get the answers 
in about an hour, we'll as we said, and we'll see you then in overtime. That's Julia Borston joining us with the setup. Now let's bring in Anastasia Amoroso of iCapital and Keith Lerner of Truist Wealth. Uh, welcome. It's good to have you on as we, you know, we walk up to this report, which maybe matters more than, um, I don't know, it always matters. But yeah. given what tech has done and comm services to start the year, I would assume this better be good. It better be good. It better not disappoint. But I do think the silver lining here is that think about how many tech companies either suspended guidance altogether or they had a negative pre-announcement or the analysts took down their earnings estimates. And for example, if you look at communication services, if you look at Infotech, the earnings estimates for this quarter are negative 15%. So I think that's a very low bar. But, you know, companies like Netflix better surprise to the upside. Now, I think the scope for surprise is there because, Scott, we talk about how economic data has been continuing to surprise to the upside. I think consumer may also surprise to the upside. We saw the retail sales last week that was sort of bad, but once you dig into the details, guess what was strong? Consumption on food and beverage was strong, but also online retail was strong as well. And overall, consumers are prioritizing leisure, entertainment over durable goods. So I actually think that bodes well for parts of tech. You're not positive on most parts of the market, uh, Mr. Lerner. However, technology is one of the places you're actually overweight. It is, but I'm not actually super excited about it. So that tells you why we're not super excited about the market at this level. So I think with tech, they have some levers right now, right? Uh, this is the year of efficiency, and we're seeing that they're pulling that lever. So I think these tech companies will continue to outperform on a relative basis. The challenge I see is that you're, tra you're, pr you're trading at a 30% um, at, at premium for the sector relative to the broader market. So the question becomes, how far can tech take this market by itself? We actually just looked at some interesting data. Over the last three months, only about 26% of stocks within the S&P are outperforming the S&P. So what does that tell you? Well, tech has been the driving force. You top need, heavy. It just need, says that this, this whole thing has been top heavy need, since the start of the you year. You need this to bore in out. Um, and, and maybe that's the that glass half full that you have opportunity to, to bore in out. But in our view, if you're already trading at one of the highest valuations in the last 20 years for tech on a relative basis, where's the big upside for this market going to come from? You feel like tech's vulnerable here? Uh, I, I mean, I don't. And the reason I say that, yes, you know, maybe the multiple is higher on tech and higher on, um, you know, the Nasdaq than it is on the S&P. But I think there's two differentiating factors for technology. First of all, look at margins. Who has the highest margins in the S&P 500? It's technology and software. So there should be a premium in valuations for that. And then the second point, if you look at the earnings CAGR, the, the, the earnings growth for the next two years, for example, Scott, for the S&P, it's averaging about 8 percent, which may be high. But guess what? For the Nasdaq, it's about 14 Right. So it's all about how much you're paying for unit of growth and for the margin. And I think the story there is positive for tech. And then the other thing, too, is I do think we're towards the end of this hiking cycle. And mm -hmm. that means this valuation headwind may not necessarily be a tailwind, but it's not going to hopefully move the multiples one way or another. And in that environment, if tech multiples are stable and earnings growth actually outperforms the S&P, I think that's a good setup. Bostic was on our network. Raphael Bostic, Atlanta Fed Prez earlier today. Keith said, uh, my baseline, one more hike for sure. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to hold it there. And he doesn't have recession as his base case either. What do you make of that? Well, first thing, I think there's a lot of debate whether they're going to raise one more time or not. I don't think that's that important. I think the bigger picture is the end of the tightening cycle is near. And then the question becomes historically what comes next. Historically, you get a bit of a short-term rally. And I think that's part of the reason why this market has rallied. Wait a minute. Why are you negative then? Well, because as we go into the second half, part of the sustainability of a rally 
is whether um, you go into a recession or not. I know there's a lot of debate, soft landing, hard landing. We think the economy is going to slow in a meaningful way by the end of this year. And then when I look at the earnings side of this market, we talked about multiples being relatively high. I see a disconnect. I see that the industry analysts are expecting earnings for the S&P in the back half to come back to an all-time high. But I look at the economists, and they're looking for a significant declining in the, in the economic growth. So I think there's a disconnect. I think it, you don't have to be bearish, but at a minimum, that just tells us our view is that the upside is likely capped. I realize the one positive right now is position is still relatively light. So that may stretch things a little bit. But if you're looking like we are the next six to 18 months, it's not something that we feel like there's a lot of upside in this market. Well, I mean, it, make, it, it makes perfect sense to be bearish, though, if you believe that earnings are still too optimistic and that estimates are still too high. Like uh, Mike Wilson, for example, at Morgan Stanley has been routinely bringing up, including again this week. And I don't even think you have to be overly negative on earnings. If I say that the earnings for the next year are money good, which I think there's actually downside, you're still trading at the highest level of the S&P over the last 30 years outside of two periods, the pandemic overshoot or the technology um, bubble. So you have to really, at this point, to be positive, you have to assume one of two things. One, we're going to trade at those higher those high evaluations that we've only seen twice, or that our earnings are going to be much stronger than the, the consensus. What about soft landing? Does that make a difference to you? Because it doesn't make a difference to, to everybody, right? Marco Kalanovic, JP Morgan says, even with a soft landing, we could still go down 15 plus percent. I mean, that's one call, right? But what, what I look at is I look at multiples and they're 16, 17 times. I mean, that is not that rich if you think the Fed is going to pause and if the economy is cooling and not cratering. That's not that extended of a multiple. I think in order for us to see the downside that maybe, you know, we're talking about 15 percent, we need to start to price in a recession. That needs to be a lower multiple. I should correct myself, too. He's talking about if even if you have a very mild recession, you could still go down 15 plus percent. But the, yeah. the point being, that in his view, the market's going lower. And that's an important distinction. If we do, in fact, have negative GDP growth, if we have to price in a recession, that's right. 16, 17 percent times multiple is not sustainable, but we're not imminently heading there. And, you know, the, the other thing to come back to earnings, you know, yes, it's true that consensus was looking for two hundred and forty eight dollars on the S&P 500 earnings for twenty twenty four. But guess what? That two hundred and forty eight number has already been cut back. Yeah, it's like two twenty. Well, that's for 2023. But whether you look at this estimate, this year's estimates, if you look at next year estimates, we've already seen 10 or maybe percent, more percent cuts in er, in earnings estimates. So I actually think the bar for earnings has been de-risked quite a bit. And the other point I would say, Scott, it's really difficult to kind of project what the market is going to do three, six months from now. You know, we really that's have to That's why see, you guys get paid the big bucks. Well, that's why I'm focused on the next month. That's why I'm focused on the next couple of months and the data that you can see in front of us. The data that I see today, it's a cooling economy, not a cratering one. Yeah, I mean, that three to six months, uh, who knows what the, what the market outlook is, is going to be. But if I told you that the consumer holds up Earnings remain better than feared. And at the May meeting, the Fed gives you the, you know, if, even if they don't explicitly come out and say it, but they lead you to believe we're done. Do you become more positive? I don't know that we become more positive. I think what will happen is if we don't have a pullback, I think this market's going to slog around, you know, with choppy nation, uh, choppy nature. And I just don't think you're going to see like a really great opportunity. That may happen. Markets can correct in time or in price. But to your point, if, if all those things happened, I think that because of positioning, we would have an overshoot. But even if I use optimistic assumptions for next year, 
it's hard for me to see this market in a really optimistic scenario above 4,300. The, the further, though, that we get away from the October low, it's like, okay, well, here's another month that we got away sure. from it. And then there's another month. I mean, at some point you yeah. say, okay, yeah. I've seen enough. Well, I don't think I'm going to call this race. Well, I don't think you need to call that the October. We, I don't think you have to say we're going to have to break below that. That's still 10% from where we are today. And I think also what's curious when I look at the data, Normally, by this time of a bull market, you're up about double for the S&P. Normally, small caps are leading. Normally, financials are leading. We're not seeing any of that today. And then you look year to date, the average stock is up about 2 or 3%. And then I know we're up 8% this year. But if you go back to mid-December before we corrected, we're basically up 1% or 2%. So a lot of things depend on where your starting point is. Anastasia, last quick word to you. I mean, I think it's been tough to be a bear in this market. And the reason that there's I think still plenty of them, though, there's plenty of them. And maybe that's a good thing. That's why we haven't tried to be a bear, because there's so much negative sentiment out there. As long as this economy hangs in and as long as the Fed is approaching a pause, I think you still have a phase in the market where the stocks can do OK. So I don't want to pre-trade a recession. And for now, sticking with dividends and sticking with tech. All right. Well, we've turned positive across the board. Uh, if that means anything, at least for the Dow and the S&P, I see the Nasdaq is still Uh, a touch negative as we wait for those Netflix earnings in overtime. Thank you very much, Keith, Anastasia. Talk to you soon. Let's get to our Twitter question of the day. Speaking of Netflix, what is the best streaming stock right now? Is it Netflix, Disney, Warner Brothers, Discovery, or Paramount? Head to at CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter. Please vote. The results will have them for you. A little later on in the show, we do have a big one on deck, though. Up next, an exclusive with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. He talks earnings, the state of the banks, consumers, the economy, and much more. And later, former J. Crew and Gap CEO Mickey Drexler is here at Post 9. He breaks down the current state of retail, the health of the consumer. Do not go anywhere. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. Saving, researching, investing. Now you can take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. I have an investment account with Schwab and a 401k with Fidelity, and I use Yahoo Finance to consolidate them so it's incredibly easy to manage. They've been helping great investors like you for over 25 years. So whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking to level up, Yahoo Finance can simplify things, putting all your tools and data in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a 360-degree look at the financial news cycle, from breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, and customizable charts. They've got you covered. You can see all of your 401k and other investments by securely linking your brokerage accounts. Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you see your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective helps smart investors become even better. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Bank of America reporting a beat on the top and bottom lines today, driven in part by a 25% rise in net interest income and better than expected sales and trading revenue. Our Becky Quick joins us now for an exclusive interview with Bank of America Chairman and CEO 
Brian Moynihan. Becky, over to you. Scott, thank you so much. And I uh, want to welcome Brian Moynihan. Uh, Brian, earnings very strong across the board. Scott just mentioned a lot of the numbers. I think it was the net interest income that had so many people kind of watching and wondering what happens next. Those numbers are strong. It means that you can get deposits paying out very low amounts uh, of interest to people, but you give out loans at higher rates. What, what are you seeing just as we get deeper into this at, towards the end of the quarter as things change so much with banking? Um, is the net interest income, is that a number you think can continue or how do things change and how do they shape? Well, at the end of the day, it's good to talk to you again, Becky, um, and thank you. The, t- the team at Bank of America had a great quarter, $8 billion plus in earnings and 17% return on tangible common equity. And we did it by growing loans year over year and having st- deposits stabilized. As the Fed has withdrawn monetary combination, QT, shrinking their balance sheet, everything your colleagues were talking about before, the money's got moved to off, off the bank balance sheets out of the system, but our deposits set up relatively well. And I think even through the, uh, in March, even through the changes in March in the banking system, our deposits held up well and performed a little bit better than we thought we did. So we had $14.6 billion in I for the quarter, up 25%, as you said. But the real question is, what do we do? We, we you know, open accounts for people and they give us deposits and we turn around and make loans to people or we invest the excess. And that's been going on for years. That's it. It's called banking. And then we have fee revenue streams and all of them performed well linked quarter. Uh, albeit that the, the pace of rate rises has slowed, so therefore you're starting to see an eye flatten out, and it was down a little bit quarter to core banking book, more or less flat. And we see that continuing in the future, and we gave some guidance today they'd be down a little bit next quarter, but it, we feel pretty good about it. You said today that you're anticipating a mild recession at this point, just based on what you're seeing with the consumer, which still looks strong, maybe a little bit of a slowdown when it comes to commercial issues, commercial loans, but... Um, is that dependent on the Fed slowing things down after this next rate hike that's anticipated? Well, the, we base our earnings on the, the market, and the market has a one Fed increase left in the forward curve and then has cuts. Whether those come true or not uh, is really going to be dependent on what the Fed sees after they, at each meeting, because they're completely driven by trying to figure out what's going on in data. Our team, uh, Candace Browning Platt and research team, have a recession and have consistently had a recession predicted for the second half of this year, uh, third quarter, fourth quarter, first quarter of next year, and then ends, and it, we start to see positive growth. And so that's based on the Fed tightening having finally taken hold, and, and those experts see that. When we look at our consumers, though, you can see the core conundrum that faces the Fed. Our consumers spent you know, 9% more in March of 2023 than they did in March of 2022. They spent about 8% in the first quarter more than they spent last year uh, in the first quarter. And they're spending on things, frankly, which drive employment, and, and meaning they're spending on experiences at amusement parks or theaters or restaurants or, or outside co- concerts or outside entertainment. All these things drive people to make them happen as opposed to other things, uh, buying a product which would come from another country potentially. So U.S. employment is very strong. So our customers are seeing you know, wage growth and seeing wages, and they also have money in their accounts, still a lot of the stimulus money left in. So that's what the Fed is trying to slow down, and albeit I think you know, we, we see and our experts see them having a, 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 you know, a mild recession, which if they could do that and unemployment never got much above four and a half, that would be a heck of an accomplishment. And so that's the base case, and we are running a company accordingly. Mm. You know, deposits were down just slightly, but you're still talking about deposits up over $500 billion from what they were pre-pandemic at the end of 2019 or going through that. Um, You and I have talked a lot in the past about deposits being sticky. Are they still going to be sticky? Because one thing we've learned during the the issues the banks have been having recently is that people are willing and able to move their money pretty quickly electronically. 
Yeah, I think if you look across our customer base, um, it, it deposits is a great big word, and there's 1.91 trillion of them at Bank of America, and it is up $500 billion or more since pre-pandemic. And you'd say, well, is that going to go back out? And the answer is the economy on a real, on a gross basis is up a lot also. So the industry's deposits are up 31 percent, ours are up 34 percent. We have gained share during the pandemic in this aftermath, and that's by opening up, since the pandemic started, we've opened up 2.5 million net new checking accounts in our consumer business. Our, you know, our wealth management customers have opened up 25,000 or so bank accounts last quarter, the first quarter of this year. The, you know, the, we just keep deepening our relationships and driving it. That means our deposits are inherently sticky because different customers are using the cash for different purposes. If you're a core uh, general consumer in our consumer business, your money's coming in and out of your household, you're paying your bills, et cetera. If you're a wealthy customer, when cash you know, funds were basically getting zero and there was nothing to do with the money, you just left it sitting at the bank. When cash, when a money market yields or direct treasures went up, you move some out. We expected that to happen. As a matter of fact, we did it for the customers. That's the way it works. And then when your corporate customers, the same thing, and there's even some uh, tedious stuff that in there called earnings credit rate and things like that. But basically, companies pay us for their services by leaving deposits with us. If we raise that rate, they can leave less deposits. Now, interesting, those deposits have been relatively stable the last six months. So each customer base, each who it is, what they do with the money, investment cash versus transactional cash is very different. But at the end of the day, $1.91 uh, $1 trillion of deposits, they've been relatively stable the last six months. We showed some detail to that. And you know, we feel very good about that. Given those mm -hmm. deposits, we make loans and, and serve our customers that way. Hey, Brian, Warren Buffett said that he expects more bank failures, but he also said that he, he doesn't think any depositor is going to lose a dime in any of this. How would you kind of sum up how you see things shaking out with the turmoil in the banking business lately? Well, I think our industry has great capital, capital great liquidity, is managed well. And, and so if you look at it, you know, the FDIC insurance ensures that depositors don't lose the money underneath the insurance levels. Typically, when a bank fails, all the deposits are bought by an acquiring bank. There was a little bit of difference in the March things where they had to make some systemic declarations. But at the end of the day, you want the depositors to go on and conduct their daily business while the shareholders and debt holders take a hit, and that's what happened. The key that we have to remind everybody is we pay for all that. And, and I mean, the industry pays its own way in terms of the insurance. The government guarantees it, but the industry reimburses the government for that. That's one of the reasons why our expenses were up this quarter. We had an additional $100 million in uh, deposit insurance costs. Had nothing to do with what went on in the first quarter, but they were scheduled to go up. And so I think we feel very good about this industry. It's well managed. The business models that were uh, challenged early this uh, in, in March were very different from the, than the the banks at uh, the regional banking system and stuff, and we've seen the stability come in the system, and that's a very good thing for America, quite frankly, because the strength of our banking system is one of the things that holds us in great stead all over the world. Brian, unrealized losses on hold to maturity bonds, you brought that number down from $108 billion three months ago to $99 billion now. That's a big number. Obviously, it's nothing compared to the deposits you have, not going to be an issue in terms of being able to hold those things to maturity, but how does it impact profitability earnings-wise uh, for the company? It really doesn't. We also showed today that the rates on our on our trillion dollars we have to put to work every day because we have $1.9 trillion plus other cash from debt and other things to put to work. We have only have a trillion of loans. It goes into cash, AFS securities, held to mature securities. You look at those things as, on average, they keep going up each quarter. And people say, how could that happen if they're fixed rate? Well, a lot of it's floating rate. A lot of it was he fixed rate stuff hedged. And so that keeps marching forward. So at the end of the day, our 
we had 25% more uh, net interest income last year's first quarter. This year's first quarter, we held up better than we originally planned. We thought we'd be at 14.4 billion, we're at 14.6. But it's the way you extract the value of those deposits. And so we quit investing in the held to maturity in mid-2021, and it's just been running off it. But that was a plan. Once we figured out the deposits were going to be stay, stay in the industry because of the stimulus and the things that went on during the pandemic, we then had to invest them, even when rate, short-term rates were zero, to produce some revenue. Otherwise, we basically were running the business for no profit. And then <laughs> we did that, and then we let it run down. And, you know, $8 billion after tax is a pretty good quarter. Yeah, it is. It is. Brian, I want to thank you very much very much for your time today. Brian Moynihan, Bank of America. Thank you, Becky. Thank you. Scott, we'll send it back over to you. All right, Becky. Thanks very much. Our thanks to Brian as well. Up next, retailing legend Mickey Drexler joins me right here at Post 9. Get his forecast for the retail sector, where the consumer could be heading from here. Inflation, too. He's got a good read on that. That's right after this break. Closing bell right back. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Quote, it's tough out there. Those are the words of our next guest who knows the retail landscape better than most anyone. Mickey Drexler is the former CEO of J. Crew and Gap. He's now the chairman of Alex Mill, alongside his son who founded the business. Mickey here with us at Post 9 in a CNBC exclusive. Welcome. It's good to see you. Nice to see you. So it's Thanks. tough out there, but yet you still want it back in this game? Well, it's what I love to do. Passionate. Uh, I could never sit and do nothing. Um, I was helping other people when I left J. Crew, I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> and uh, I like to operate and create and, you know, and uh, work with people and teams. I mean, it's an interesting time, to say the least, you know, when you came back to, to do this, where it's still in the pandemic, trying to figure our way and what the future of retail is going to be. How do things look to you now? Well, you know, um, I, I'm, I look further out. I got very uh, emotional about the name, Alex Mill, and I love names that are good. Old Navy, named after a bar in Paris, Madewell, the defunct uh, name that I bought from a company that was out of business. Then you kind of build your imaginations around that. But I I think it's going to get tough, and it should be tough. There's too many of us around. Uh, And now it's particularly tough, I know, for us. We're we're like this, but we're up against post pandemic great year and so now our comps are tough now i speak to a lot of people out there there's some uh you know winners and more people who are concerned uh and it's just tough uh for other reasons too when you say there are too many of us around you mean there are just too many retailers of course yeah still oh well that's yeah still well i mean because it's been tough for the last well i don't know how many went out uh, but, uh, you know, for years they were saying, I don't know what this means. You know, there are this many square feet in, uh, in America and the rest of the world has m- much less per consumer of retail. And now it's online, too, of course. Is it good being a smaller player like you are or are there 
you know, pitfalls against that, too. I mean, you're competing against the, the deepest pockets well, around. You know, it's a good question. But, you know, uh, I always say, but as small is the new big. Hmm. And I was a deep pocket for a number of years, and it was easy because we had a bank of, at Gap, and we had a bank at J. Crew. And here it's, we're owned by all of us, options and equity, because frankly, uh, I'd rather do it without a lot of opinions, except for the people who aren't investors who I know and trust their judgment, their instinct. And that's my board of directors. I go to whoever knows more than me about a subject. Would you also rather do it without a lot of locations? I mean, does that, well, that make a difference no, these days, too? You're more direct consumer. Yeah, well, right? you know, look, I've been doing that for 40 years. And there's others, you know, but everyone, DTC is the new, everything's like a new thing. You know, uh, AI and all that stuff. I, I, you know, I, uh, I would like to have enough stores that get our name out there. Our biggest challenge now is no one knows our name because we don't have a big budget uh, at all because, you know, we write the checks. And when we're ready, we're going to go out there. But right now, uh, we're going to do, look, if you don't create, you don't go new, then you fall backwards. Hmm. And I think there's a big opportunity in America for more creative. I think our marketing, like most, is kind of almost commodity. Here's the style, here's the email, here's Instagram, and here's whatever else is out there. So, well, I was thinking, like, is it better to have a killer product or a killer marketing machine these number days? Number one, to me, killer product along with marketing, public relations, a really nice company with people who care. Uh, and, but I think you can, we, we might get known if we had a tipping point. In my other companies, we had big budgets and extremely creative, in my opinion, looking back. Is now, is, is now a great time or a horrible time for fashion? Just I'm thinking about the pandemic. You come out, out of the pandemic, we're, we're still fighting you know, with ourselves over how much we want to go to the office. Um, it's kind of anything goes. So I would think that's negative. Oh, that's positive for a fashion standpoint. You kind of do whatever you want. But if you're not going to the office, it's maybe more negative because anything goes. You can be so casual these well, days, it doesn't really matter. Don't get me started with not going to the office, okay? Maybe I'm old-fashioned. You're going into the Spont office kind of guy? Oh, spontaneity, mentorship, creativity, social, uh, and, you know, being close. But, you know, remote, look, people can do that, etc. cetera. I, I think that, first of all, I don't, I don't consider us necessary in the fashion business. We're in the business of style, taste, and whatever it would be, uh, that's what... I would want to do. And it happens to be things you can wear. I find personally, and I, you know, just my opinion, that when I look at the clothes out there, especially at the fancy clothes, I don't understand. I never see anyone looking like that. The prices to me are, you know, whatever. I mean, you've got to take a mortgage out. Now, <laughs> the handbags, and if you look at it, you know, Gucci, Hermes, whoever else, Chanel. I mean, that seems to be one of the biggest status symbols out there because you can afford to buy one. 
What, as you say, prices, what, what about literal prices at stores these days in terms of sales and where inventories are, where inflation is and, you know, where, where you're sourcing your, your cotton from yeah. and the rest of your, well, it, your fabrics? Also is it still question. as bad? Um, no, not, not cotton and all that. But uh, today, um, what about what was the first question? I always go off on a tangent. Yes, what, what, what you're seeing, um, you know, on, on the ground now in terms of inflation, oh, pricing okay. and discounting, because okay. inventory, bloated inventory has been such an issue. The only thing that's gotten lower in inflation is the press. Uh, look at the prices around concert tickets. You know, Bruce Springsteen, who they wrote, you know, I love Bruce because he's one of the guys, but food. Um, you know, uh, re- subscriptions, whatever, cars, uh, da- daily things, it's still inflated. So maybe it went down 6%. But, you know, it's down 90% uh, or up 90% from two or three years ago. And I speak to, you know, I schmooze with a lot of people, I ask, and they, they tell me, you know, I work only with 25 people. We have a bullpen like you do in the finance business. But I think it's tougher. Sale, you mentioned, it's integrity of a business. I call it shopping mall bingo. Oh, I paid 50 today, and now it's 39. Mm-hmm. If you go online, you know, people say, it tells you the story of every company. I am, look, we had too much sale in my day. And at Alex Mill, I wanted to build with the team a nice company that has integrity. And we have a July sale and a sale in December, and that's it. Now, we don't have the resources of the big pockets, but, you know, it's a trade-off. I mean, you know, you have to be optimistic in my world, look forward, have vision, and that's what keeps me going every day. I don't like, you know, losing a bit of money every year because, you know, we're small and not really capitalized that well, but... I think we have a great future. When you when you do look out into the big picture, um, besides your, yourselves, obviously, who who's doing it well? Who do well, you think is doing it well? I, I never mention that sometimes I get into trouble. There are a few winners out there. See, I'm not asking you to criticize. I, <laughs> right, I purposely right. asked you it that way because yeah. I knew you're not going to sit here and criticize. Well, I'm much the... better at criticizing. Than, <laughs> in fact, you know, there's something not to change the subject. I like quotes like. And a lot of people don't understand me in a sense. And I say, don't praise me, criticize me. And I always tell people I'm walking around to see what we can do better. And I expect what we do well. Uh, I don't say, oh, great job. We're all expected to pole vault higher. I, I don't know if you know the rules of pole vaulting, but you got to keep jumping till you fail. And uh, so. Who set the bar up? Who set the bar up high then to, well, to use no, that? Start when you win. This is a, a director, Josh Weston, J. Crew. He ran a great company for a million years, ADP, and he explained that the board meeting. If you, what? No, oh, your sorry. microphone's about to fall okay. off. Oh, I don't want it to hit the floor. Okay. There we go. There you go. So he explained <laughs> pole vaulting rules, and it's jump. You win. You win the competition. You keep jumping until the stick or whatever it's called falls down. That's what, that's what we do. Would, would you be an investor in a publicly traded retail company today, given how 
concerned you are about kind of where we well, are? You I, said there's too many of us, yeah. implying well, that some are you know, need to go away. I, I'm not a good investor in stocks. And when I do retail, I get in, fall in love with a potential, uh, potential business thinking if it's run this way. And so you're really investing in leadership in every company, in my opinion. Oh, you said you said there's a you had a really interesting uh, quote that I thought inventory is a temporary problem. Leadership is a permanent problem. Well, I said that. I you, like you that. said that. <laughs> well, leadership, it's wrong. That's well, I mean, there are good leaders out there. Oh, in, there are in terrific the leaders. Yes, there are who I admire and respect. The list is not long enough for me, but my I'm a fetch. My standards are what they are. <laughs> and I always like to look up at people and I learn from anyone, not what to do, to do. Uh, but, you know, I know all of them. And, you know, look at their stores or their online. That's a reflection of the leadership. And the other reflection is I always review uh, my team members from bottom up. Who knows better than who's a great leader than the people that work for them and are motivated by them? Let me ask you one last question sure. before I go. Um, you're no longer on the Apple board. No. But when you look at their the whole retail experience, when you go into an Apple store these days, what do you think? Well, I had something to do with the original store. I love Steve, by the way. There's, in my opinion, he was the best ever. And I say the best retailer ever. Uh, what do I think? You know, I'm not a technology person. I don't even know how to work this computer. I do iPads and iPhones. But look, I think when the store's that big, look, I, iPhones are a monopoly. So I think I wish I had something that was a monopoly. But he's incredible, and Tim's doing a great job. It's a great company. You still a shareholder in Apple? Um, uh, yeah, a little, not, you know did well with it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you I did. I mean, uh, 1999, you know. I'm sure you did. Yeah. I'm sure you did. That's why you are who you are. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Very All right. Much. That's Mickey Drexler uh, joining us here exclusively on Closing Bell. You sit tight for, you sit, you sit you sit tight tight. for a sec. All right. Still ahead. The key names you need to be watching as we head towards the close. And we are less than 30 minutes away from Netflix numbers. The key themes every investor needs to watch. That's up next. Got about 15 minutes before the closing bell. Let's send it to Pippa Stevens for a look at the key stocks we're watching today. Pippa? Hey, Scott. Well, Boeing is in the green as CEO Dave Calhoun said the company plans to stick by its target to increase production of the 737 MAX. That comes after Boeing last week disclosed a problem with the fuselage in some of its 737 MAX planes, saying that could lead to reduced deliveries. But at the company's annual shareholder meeting today, Calhoun said the issue will not impact long-term guidance. NVIDIA also in the green following a double upgrade to buy at HSBC. The firm saying NVIDIA's AI opportunity more than offsets prior concerns around a data center slowdown shares up more than 80 percent this year. Scott. All right. Good stuff, Pippa. Thank you very much. That's Pippa Stevens. Last chance to weigh in on our Twitter question of the day. We asked, what is the best streaming stock right now? Netflix, Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery or Paramount? Head at CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter. The results right after this break. Let's get the results now of our Twitter question. We asked, what is the best streaming stock right now? The majority of you said it is Netflix reporting shortly in overtime. 
54.4% Disney. Number two, we said Netflix getting ready to report. We'll have a rundown of what to watch coming up next in the market zone. We're now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down the crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Peter Sapino of Wolf Research on the questions he wants Netflix to answer when it reports in overtime in just a short period of time. Mike, to you first. I feel like kind of the market's waiting around for these kinds of names to deliver and see if they actually do deliver. That's for sure. And, and it may not just be about the big growth stocks, which, yes, have uh, have had an outsized uh, kind of role in driving the market higher. But, you know, S&P X Tech, I was just taking a look, is up 5% year to date. It's up 2% this month. It's still the bigger stocks. It's the ones that people know and have uh, an attachment to. So, yeah, we're waiting around to see if the fundamentals can give us any different complexion of this market. Because right now, it's been about, okay, the Fed's just about done, the macro is held together, uh, and that's been enough to feed off a very negative sentiment and positioning to this point. Big question, tactically, does the market give you a chance to profitably sell the same level a fifth or sixth time in the last 10 months, which is right where we are right now, 4,100 to 42? Or, you know, is there going to be an overshoot attempt? Do you have an opinion of a VIX that is 1681 as we speak? I have a few opinions, one of which is it simply reflects the market we're in. It's been rotating. It's not been falling apart. It's been in a narrow range. Even that said, it's getting a little compressed. Uh, Just before I came on here, took a look at the 10 and 20 day actual historical volatility of the S&P 500. That equivalent VIX is right here. It's 16 and change. Usually there's a little bit of a margin between the the, the spot VIX and that. So, yeah, it's, it's saying that people have not found it to be particularly profitable to buy protection in this area. That said, if you look at the VIX futures, June is above 21. That's only two months away. July is above 22. So that when you have that kind of shape of the VIX curve, it means it's a kind of a normal market, so to speak. We'll see if the, you know, the f- fundamentals and the macro can redeem that view that we're in a more normal market that's rotating around danger uh, and is basically in a more comfortable spot. All right, Peter, you have a laundry list of sorts of what we need to watch out for in overtime tonight with Netflix. What's towards the top of that list? Well, Netflix, the subject that's on everybody's mind is the company's transition to build new revenue streams. Advertising is the biggest one and the one we're most excited about. And the most uh, high top of mind one is the paid sharing initiative, the effort that Netflix has begun in certain countries to squeeze revenue out of the people who use other people's passwords to watch the programming. You know, you're not getting sub guidance anymore. Uh, how, How does that shape how you model what this should look like in a matter of moments and then how the stock should trade as a result of it. Well, despite a lack of formal sub guidance, the company did help Wall Street formulate some general expectations for the quarter and uh, people will be watching the subscriber report closely. I think as Netflix matures, subscriber growth matters less and less. I think of the Hollywood incumbents who had uh, for many years did never did not report the count of subscribers that they had in the pay TV ecosystem, the market focused on subscribers and pricing and globalization and new products. And, and Netflix is really heading in that direction. But it's it's a long, slow journey. And, and net ads still matter for this stock. 
you don't like much in this space. I mean, in terms of the names in your in coverage universe, Warner Brothers Discovery, though, pops out as the one you like the best. It's a really tough space. The secular trends for the Hollywood incumbents are are uh, well well reported on, and they're just as bad as the headlines. And in the meantime, uh, Netflix is a secular winner at a relatively demanding valuation. We're, we're a believer in the long-term compounding opportunity there. Warner Brothers Discovery to us is leading the, the change in the industry. There's this transition that's incipient from the land grab mentality of the years, the last three years or so, in which everybody in Hollywood was fighting for their lives, trying to recreate their share of television in the streaming ecosystem. And Warner Discovery has really stopped the land grab and they're focused on generating cash flow and paying down debt. And we think the, the self-help opportunity at WBD is very compelling. All right, Peter, thank you. I appreciate that. Less than two minutes to go now. You heard the sound effect. Back to Mike Santoli for his last word. I mean, no real landmines from the banks. No. So we're, we're kind, of, kind of through that. Yes. And earnings, by and large, have been pretty decent. They've been okay. It's, it's definitely early. And I think almost uh, a bigger issue is that the earnings decline in terms of the trajectory of the estimates has been orderly and it's been well telegraphed and nobody was expecting big things. That's been enough over the last couple of quarters to keep the market together as we got reporting season through. Um, again, valuations in themselves are not compelling. The risk reward at the upper end of the range probably doesn't look as good as did, you know, 10% ago. Uh, but, you know, if, if we're getting into the second half of this year and all of a sudden 2024 numbers don't look delusional uh, as they're published right now, uh, then, then the market can make its way again if the Fed is done uh, and you still do have this pretty high tank, this full tank of, uh, of anxiety out there in the way of people uh, piling into cash. Fed speak didn't do much to upset anything today. Bostic was like, yeah, one more done. Yeah. Leave it there for a while. But, you know, I, I will have seen enough at that point. It I matches, think. pretty much matches where the market is right now. It's going to get above 5%. They've been targeting that level for a little while. Uh, we're a couple of weeks away, but it seems like the data is going to uh, essentially underwrite that notion that done soon, then we see what the net damage is. All right, game on. In overtime, Netflix, that report is literally just moments away. Morgan and John pick up that story right now in overtime. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.